We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central studios. At Silencer Central, their experts make the buying process simple. They help you select the right suppressor for your weapon, handle the paperwork, and deliver right to your front door when you're approved. Visit SilencerCentral.com to find out if buying and owning a silencer is legal in your state. It was the location of the last major battle in the Pacific campaign to defeat the Japanese, with very bloody combat both in the jungles and the cities. The Philippines campaign cost the United States 62,425 casualties. The Japanese casualties were significantly higher at over 333,000 and 45,000 prisoners of war. We have had noted author John McManus on the show discussing his series of books about the role of the Army in the Pacific. Today, we have the privilege of talking to a soldier who was there, earning two bronze stars in the process. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Joe Pepishari. I'm glad to be on your program, and I appreciate it very much. So where's the nickname Pepe come from, Joe? Well, Pepe, you know, is actually in Italian that means Joe. Oh, okay. There will be no, the family's own name is Joe, so they decided to give me the nickname Pepe, and so when they call Pepe, then they'll answer, you know. So that's how it all started, yeah. Fair enough. You were born in Chinatown, Joe, in 1924. A lot of Italians in Chinatown at that time? At that time, there were not many, too many Chinese there at the time, but mostly Italians and uh, Polish and Slavonians in that old area. So it was like a little Italian colony at, at the time where uh, they had a little Italian church there on um, not too far from all the area called St. Peter's. And uh, so that was quite an Italian center there. Now, how long had your family been in the U.S.? Well, actually, uh, they they both they got here around uh, 1906. They both lived, my mom lived to 99 years old, so my mom's been here a long, longer than my dad. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, were, they were 16 years old when they got here, I think. So they just loved America, They they being happy to be here as an American. And what I will tell you that when it was a voting date, you know, my dad and mom would dress just like when they'd go to church with their hat, and my dad would have a tie and a, and a coronation um, being on his lapel, and they both walk hand in hand down the street so they go vote. They pick on a dedicated, a dedicated uh, an American. They believe in our American flag and the emblem of our country. That's a very special mental picture you're painting for me there, Joe. Now, I don't do math in public, but I would say this puts you at about 99 years old now. That's right. What's the key to a long and healthy life? You know what? I, I, I really don't. I can't answer that, but I had a beautiful, beautiful marriage. Um, there's really a story about my, my wife and I. And when she was a little girl, 11 years old, and I was 12, and I took a trip to Chicago with my family, you know, and I met this beautiful young girl. I got for it. She was so cute then, but she never gave me the time of the day, you know. And um, so she come back and traveled back to an Ostadius from Chicago and spent a week. My still getting near her, but when she left us, I gave her a little necklace. That's the last time I saw her. And then going back 
uh, when I when I was in New Caledonia and the Pacific there, I got a letter from her sister, and it says it's okay if Lucille was her name if she liked to write to you, and I, oh my God, I just flew up and happiness and knowing that this young gal finally got a title, what she looked like, but for two years she'd been writing to me, and we made arrangements that. Uh, once we, a year old, if I was lucky, that uh, we'd be together for the rest of our life, you know, and that, and it did happen. Wow. And, um, and so there's a big story about that. It's going to be on Channel 11 Fox in a week or two about a story about her and I, uh, because I, I got ill uh, with malaria so badly when she got here, and so I was in a hospital for three weeks, so... While I was in the hospital, I said, well, there's a good chance that she may go back to Chicago. Why she, why would she want to marry a, a little person from the war, you know? And, and so, but when I got out of the hospital, she was there. Huh. And we lived a beautiful life of 73 years together. And, and the story's all about us. And then the, the Channel 11 really got excited about it and added and everything and made a beautiful program out of it. Now, we haven't seen it. It, it's already completed, but it should be coming out soon on Channel 11. Well, I, I look forward to seeing it. We'll certainly promote it to our listeners, Joe. I'd, now, you were in, in middle school when, when the Germans began their invasions of the other countries, and that really, really bothered you, as I understand it, uh, for good reason. But then you were about 16 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. It, it made me upset because of the fact we were not ready for any war. In World War II, I couldn't figure out, with Hitler taking all those countries, I figured, well, our country would start building up, and you'd be concerned that this guy's going to take the world over. And nothing happened. Then when they bombed Pearl Harbor, they had all our all our ships tied up in one little area, you know, and and bombed up all those guys that had killed 3,500 of our men there. And that was so uncalled for. I was just 16 years old. And and I'm very upset with our country that we were not ready and we had all those ships killed combined together like that. That was very wrong, and it, it really upset me very, very much. And um, so I, I had to tell you about that. I thought, I thought that was terrible. Joel, my mother grew up in the Gilroy area there, north of San Jose, and one of the stories she used to tell is how brokenhearted she was about how a lot of her Japanese classmates there and their families were put on buses and sent to internment camps. Did you experience that at all at that age? Absolutely. I was in the middle of it. Actually, I lived in L.A. And and so whatever happened there, I'll tell you, whatever happened the fact that when the Japanese uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, we had Japanese who were dedicated to their country, Japan, with flashlights on, on the on shores of of Los Angeles and uh, California, Oregon, and, and Seattle. And so President Roosevelt didn't know who were the good guys and bad guys, so that's why they were sent to a camp. It was sad that in a lot of ways, there's a lot, there's a lot of beautiful Japanese that my dad knew very well. And a lot of them uh, gave my dad a lot of stuff to hold for them. You know, so when they, the time when they come out, my dad didn't have it for them. But there's a lot of bad Japanese at the time, and that's why they were sent to camp. So we were in a blackout in those days, you know, through most of the war, fighting the Japanese because we never knew 
you know, when they, they may be attacking us, and they attack you. They were, they were ready to go. They were well sent up for where we were not. So we had to make some moves. But the President Roosevelt is the one that made that decision, you know. Yeah, and I had an attack, a retrospect attack on the continental United States. I mean, at, at that time, it was a very real concern, a very real possibility. Joe, we got just about a minute before we have to take our first break. So you were drafted right out of high school. If you hadn't been drafted, would you have signed up anyway? Absolutely. I, they did, But they did give me a, a, a little time to graduate. The, the day after graduation, I reported uh, to uh, the station there, where then that they took me and shipped me to uh, Camp Roberts uh, Camp in, um, near San Francisco. And trained there for uh, from July to uh, December, and then we were ready to uh, board a ship and and go to the Pacific. I thought it was really sad, but we were fifteen uninformed that uh, were ready to board the ship. You know, and you think that there would be a clergyman or something. Maybe they'll they'll say a prayer and then for making this feel good, you know. But we had an announcement. And the announcement was. There's a good chance that 50% of us will not make it back home to our loved ones. And I thought that was, I accepted it, but it was not a nice thing to say. Uh, you know, a prayer would have been beautiful. That's a heck of a morale booster. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Joe Shara. Joe joined the uh, Surge in the Pacific under General MacArthur's 25th Infantry Division, the famous Lightning Division. We'll come back and talk more with Joe right after this message. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ben Bueller Garcia. Very pleased and privileged to be talking with Joe Pepe Sherry. Joe served in the Pacific during the Second World War, uh, just about to turn 99 years old. Uh, Joe, again, we're just so pleased for you to share your story here with us. And one of my favorite images I've ever seen was the USS Hornet when the Doolittle mission was starting out, and it's sailing under the Golden Gate Bridge there. Did, when you departed in the, your transport ship, did you go out under the bridge, or did you leave from someplace yeah, else? Well, I First time I've ever been on the ship, Ben, and all, and so I thought that stank was going to hit the bridge, you know, when the first time I've been on that, and then, so, but that didn't happen, and so, um, and we're on our way uh, to whatever, we didn't know our, our destination, we, we traveled for 30 days on that ship, and we ended up at the New Caledonia, the island of New Caledonia, and we met up with the young men that just got to with the Guadalcanal uh, and the uh, they were the 25th Infantry Division was fighting the canal with the um, Marines and the two of them, uh, were very successful in taking over Guadalcanal and um, so we met with the old timers there and start training um, and the well, Caledonia was a French colony and uh, we were dedicated not not to go around those cities and. And we're told that uh, we got not go around the French people and bother them at all. So we had quite a bit of training there at uh, New Caledonia. So we spent uh, nine months there for training. Now, Joe, you were assigned to a heavy weapons company, uh, and 88-millimeter uh, mortar squad. And, and though at that conflict there in the Pacific, what was the role of, of the mortar squad? Were you there principally to support the infantry? Yeah, that, that 
that was the biggest support of the uh, A1 motor is a pretty nice side weapon. There's three parts of it. You know, you had the two. You had the base plate and you had a tripod. And each part weighed 45 pounds. So we had six guns to our platoon, and now uh, we were 36 men. They had the, the gunner, and they had the second command, the guy who used to uh, handle the tube and throw the shells in it. And then we had the base plate. Then we had the other part to secure the ammunition. But we would support for the infantry. And uh, that was the weapon that uh, the enemy uh, was very um, afraid of. I mean, it's a very dangerous weapon. And so we were always attacked as a weapon they liked to dispose of, you know. They were specifically targeting you. Yeah, they that's right. And so we were, we were targeted many times. And uh, a lot of our guys um, didn't make it. And I don't know why. Why well, I I'm just so so grateful. Now if I said losing our men, that's the saddest part. But I just happened to manage to to avoid uh, those shells and uh, and uh, and continue on. You know that uh, you want to go a little further. You know uh, our job there in in, in the Philippines was that uh, major job was is uh, there's uh, 47 ridges. And uh, there was a hundred thousand Japanese surrounding that, and then the passageway to the north, which they called Benetti Pass. Uh, well, our job was there to take over the ridges. It's some of those ridges in the fifty-five miles feet high, and we climbed those. those uh, we climbed all those ridges, you know, and we were always at a disadvantage because they were on the higher ground and we were on the low ground, and so they used to pick out all the officers and one of the art they can kill. And that then made it difficult for a lot of us, you know, where we had no no direction. We sort of had it on our own. It's sort of a it was sort of a suicidal operation. But you were on your own, and and um, and you had to do whatever was right and work together with your with your with your platoons and your officers, whoever you had, and make sure that we were able to um, do the right thing. And but we suffered a lot of, a lot of casualties. And Joe, this is not like the mountains of Afghanistan. We're talking jungle, right? Yeah, the all those, those ridges were all jungle warfare. I mean, uh, we they, we didn't have no air support, and we didn't have no artillery because they they did they wouldn't know where we were at, you know, and they couldn't take a chance of bombing anything, um, because they didn't they wouldn't want to kill their own people, and that could have happened. It happened. So they had to stop doing that. So we were on our own. That jungle warfare was on our own with those ridges, and uh, so it, it was quite a chore. And and you know, remember, uh, we all had to carry our uh, my tube was forty five pounds, my pack was sixty pounds plus our weapon, and uh, that was a lot of weight to climb those hills. And I was a little guy, but I did very well. I did good. I, unless I get this wrong, Joe, I find it amazing you went through all that and were never wounded, or you never were awarded a Purple Heart. No, no, I no, I did. That was not. In fact, I mean, we were being shelled, and I and I, I hit the ground real hard, and I started loosening um, my four front teeth. And, um, and in fact, they, they were able to get me back to get that straightened out. And uh, this story I got to tell you. So when I went to the dentist and picked me up on the same day, they. They brought me right back up the ridges, you know, and they, they left me off at the wrong ridge. So I had to go down this one ridge and 
in a gully and, and, and go up another ridge to meet my boys. And I had to get there before dark. Because when it gets dark, anything you walk around, that they would be be killed. Me, they showed that you. So I did get to my my platoon just in time before the dark. But that evening we were attacked by the Japanese. Our position at night, and uh, there was a lot of fireworks and everything. And so we got through that. But then, come the morning, we we went down the gully and find out and see where the Japs come from. Well, you know when I walked up that ridge. The Japanese had tunnels underneath that ridge, and I walked up all by myself without knowing that the Japanese were there to the next day. So that that was a story, story to be told. And um, for some odd reason, I, got, I I was just so fortunate. And a lot of areas there that I should have been joining God in heaven or something. You know, I'm just grateful to talk to you. Angels on your shoulder, man. Now, yeah. given that you were with the mortar squadron, I don't know. Was this belt buckle to belt buckle fighting in some cases? At night, uh, actually, uh, the the Japanese would uh, be you know, walking around at night. So uh, if any walking, we should know it. That I I didn't have nothing, uh, you know, person to person, but it was p- pretty close. And uh, the Japanese, I tell you, when they knew they were in trouble, they would blow themselves up. They would never get. We couldn't take no prisoners. Because guys, there's no place to get. And there was a kill or be killed. You know, and that's the kind of operation you're in up there in the hills of the jungles. And um, so it was It was um, a lot of our guys didn't make it. And, you know, I, I got to tell you this, that whenever our guys were, were shot and killed, you know, and I was among them. I'd stand next to them and a lot of them were brought away. And there I was standing there. But what we had to do with these young men, we had to wrap them up, you know, and uh, because if once we moved, uh, they might be there two or three days before they're picked up. There's animals around there. Uh, we didn't want them to get to the body, and we had to do that. Some of our people I, I shared fossils with. Um, and so um, there was things happening there that, you know, you just, you couldn't shed tears anybody because you had to keep moving. You had a, you had a job to do, or if you stood still, you'd be dead too. This is your host, Ben Garcia. We're talking about World War II veteran Joe Pepishari. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central studios at Silencer Central. Their experts make the buying process of a silencer simple. Silence made simple. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if buying and owning a silencer is legal in your state. We're talking with Joe Pepishari. Joe served in the 25th Infantry Division and the Second World War in the Pacific, the Lightning Division under General MacArthur. Joe, we were talking about these 47 ridges and I mean, you had to climb up this thing under fire, secure the ridge, and I imagine you're sitting there on the top of the ridge and you're looking across the, the canyon at the next one saying, man, we got to do that tomorrow. How did you maintain the morale? Uh, you, let me tell you, so you want to stay alive? You better be, a, you know, not, not only that, your buddies to work with. We worked as a team. 
help each other out. Do you have? You can't think of anything. Just the idea you had. You had to go there after the guy. You had to kill him. And I was not a. I was not afraid of death. I felt that we had the job to do, and and we had to concentrate on that. I find that right now, you know, I'm talking to you, I appreciate talking with you, but I, I really do. I want this message to be going all over the country to what us poor guys went through. You know, and I, when I speak, I speak for all our veterans, not just me. So uh, when I'm talking to you right now, I, I'm excited talking about it. I mean, I, I shed tears that I'm while, I, while I'm talking to you, but it's thinking of the men we left behind. They were my friends and buddies, you know. And so uh, I, I, I think of it. It's been 80 some years ago. And I still think of all the young men that were my platoon that didn't make it, you know. And uh, I, I, I can't help from thinking about it. So it is that our job was was a tough job. And it was like suicidal little. When we fought there, we had you either kill or be killed. There was nothing there else to support you, you know, in any way possible. And um, so it was a tough deal. But you know what? I, I'm proud of myself, you know. I don't know. I was only a private. I was only a private. I was the number two man. And right in the middle of, of our campaign, we got halfway through. I had an officer come to me and says, we lost our platoon sergeant. We lost our section sergeants. We were all, you know, just trying to keep together as a, a team. And an officer come up to me and says, Mr. Shara, as of right now, you're the platoon sergeant. I was just a private. And I really got scared. And all that responsibility was six guns and, and all our men, you know, I was, so I was not the type of sergeant you see in the movie. I just got together with my group, you know, and we worked as a team. We worked as a team. The Marine Moose men at the end of the, the the term of taking over all those riches. Outstanding. Now, I tell you, there's a little bit of a backstory behind that, as I understand it. This same lieutenant previously had basically sent you out to be a bullet magnet, and yeah. you gave him the what for when you got back. Yeah, he's the guy. He's the lieutenant. I really give him help because I, I, I didn't care if the court marshal me or not because he sent three guys out there, which I was, I was one of them, that are trying to find out where the enemy was at to see if we got any exposure. Well, if they we had exposure, we would have been dead, you know. And so when I got back, I said, we were not trained for that. And I just let him have it. And uh, he'd become my best friend. <laughs> and he's the guy that told me I'm the platoon sergeant, you know, and I, so I, but I, you know, I did great, man. I, I'm really proud of myself, but I'm proud of my team. We worked as, as a team. I didn't fear. I take all the credit. We all did it. My whole platoon got a route star. They deserved it. And uh, so that was my first route star. Anyway, I, I, I was so, I'm so happy talking with you. And I, I've been wanting to talk to people and tell them about the experience that us guys in World War II went through. That's what we're here for. That's that's our yeah. mission right there, brother, to do that. And, and I tell you, we're very proud of you as well. Uh, something else I want to ask you about, and I've heard from authors and, and other people there that you don't just have to worry about the Japanese and snipers, but and I don't know if this is accurate or not, Joe, but I thought I saw a figure once that we had more casualties to malaria and dysentery, and all this other stuff. You're not just fighting the enemy, you're fighting the jungle. 
Right, I, I had malaria so bad. Like I said, I could have lost this year, beautiful gal very easily. And uh, I had my first attack when um, we were in Japan. And I knew, but I didn't want to. I, I carried I carried on. And um, and I had a brother visited me in Japan. And, and so he sort of took care of me. Well, I, had, I didn't want to go to the hospital or anything like that. But when I got home, was that really got hit very, very, very hard. I, and for eight years, after I got home, I still had problems, you know. And my wife stuck it with me, and I'm, I was so happy. There's the most beautiful woman in the world. And very understanding. And uh, and so, you know, I had malaria very bad. That's what you said is true. Huh. The guy died there with that, with all those diseases and everything. So then I lost all my pigmentation. And my body, because of some disease, I collected it in the, in the uh, jungle there. And uh, so I have no pigmentation more. I can't take the sun. I can't take the cold weather. I, you know, so I got in sort of, nobody will ever notice it, you know, because I was blotchy there for a while, very, very, very annoying. A lot of people stay away from you when that's blotching, but a lot of that blotching just cleared out and, and become, I had no pigmentation at all. No, it's true what you're saying. I know we had another fellow about your age who was a Battle of the Bulge survivor, and he told me, this is a couple of years ago, but he told me to this day, he still has symptoms and suffers from some of the effects of the frostbite that he got over there. So so were you basically, you were in the jungles there for about five months. You did capture all 47 ridges. And when you finally got to that last ridge or you cleared up that pass, what was, tell me what the the vibe was amongst your fellow soldiers. Well, actually, you know, uh, we were we were proud of the fact that the 25th Infantry Division actually uh, was able to take the 47th Ridge. We were the last to take that the uh, the last ridge, and uh, so actually, normally, you know, like I say, uh, when we're in that uh, jungle, uh, we should be relieved every two weeks or so. We no way can fight five and a half months and live it through. So we used to have one regiment um, and face another every two weeks. So when we get back, we we're full of lights. So we had the script and they had the sprayers and gave us new clothing and everything. And so um, then after that, we we relaxed and get ourselves uh, reestablished and, and we go back. But after, we were very happy the fact that we, the Belady Pass was now opened, you know. In fact, the, there was a colonel that, Colonel Dalton was the one that worked along and, and fought with the young man. He got killed. So we named the Belady Pass uh, Colonel Dalton's uh, Pass, you know. And so, but no, we're, we were thrilled that, you know, we were only, what, 20,000 at one time, fighting 100,000 of the Japanese, you know. And a lot of them committed suicide because they, they found themselves in trouble on them and they blow themselves up. But we took, we took out a hundred thousand of those Japanese with a lot less men, you know, and we get proud of ourselves what we did. And so, no, we were happy that this thing was over with. We're back to get the normal, uh, we spent a little time getting ourselves, uh, writing letters and receiving mail and, and, uh, then, then we were getting ready to uh, start training and getting new replacements. We we're going to ready to um, 
make a stab at Japanese and, and invasion, you know, where, that's what we're studying for. Joe, now, all, all that talk, so I want to come back to that after the break. Um, you know, the, the thankfully, the invasion of mainland Japan, which never had to happen uh, because of the atomic bombings. But just context and perspective, I want to share real quick, particularly for our, our younger listeners. You're up there on these ridges, and there was no helicopters. There was no medevac. There was no supplies being flown into. When you and your comrades were up there, you were pretty much on your own. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia, talking with Joe Pepishari about his time in the Pacific. His duty was not done there. Joe was about to sail off to the mainland of Japan. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're very privileged to be talking with Joe Pepishari. Joe is a World War II veteran, served in the Pacific. When we took the break, Joe had just finished uh, with the Philippines campaign that troops began training for the potential and invasion of mainland Japan. I, I know one of the greatest fleets ever assembled in the history of warfare was put together for that potential. But, Joe, you guys are training, and then you didn't get the news about the atomic bombings till probably two, three days after they happened. And was that kind of a relief? Yeah, that was, well, that was great. That We didn't really uh, celebrate it like they did here in America when they heard that. You know, we were happy that took place because we were ready to go. Whatever it had to be, we were ready to do a job that we had to do. And that, that would have been a very dangerous field. They were very well fortified. What happened after that then... Our regiment, we you heard the Baton Death March, right? Dead March. Yes, sir. Okay. My regiment, we thought we'd take that trip and walk that, that trip that these young men walked it. But you know what? When MacArthur left Philippines, he says, he told them that he will be back. When he left, he left about 65 to 75,000 young men there, soldiers. And these are the soldiers that walked the Bataan March. They walked there. They thought there was an 80-mile stretch there. By the time they got to the 80 miles, most of the men were killed. And by the time they got whoever was left over, they killed them, and they put them on the side of the road there. You can see a ditch. We walked that. We wanted to walk that part of that. We couldn't go the 80 miles, but we walked most of it, and you can see the ditches on the side of the road. You know? So a lot of people don't know that. That there's a lot of men to be killed. The Japanese had taken as prisoners. They killed them. And I, I thought that was a very important part to know. And that's people know about the 65 to 75,000 young men that were left behind. And they, they all went through that torture with the Japanese. That was very respectful of your regiment. I'm glad, I'm glad you did that. Joe, I don't know what it is about you and ships, but you boarded a ship to go to Japan. That journey would have normally been four days. It took you 30, not because you were lost, but one of the greatest typhoons in that period <laughs> decided to intervene. That was a scary thing because the typhoon, we even skipped part of it. And then the, 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 the height of the swells in the water was way taller than the ship, you know. And so, and the fact of the matter, you know, what I heard that some of the ship was ready to spit in two. Uh, 
because there's quite a big convoy going. And so, but we did make it. We did make it through that that terrible uh, typhoon. And because you know the China Sea is the deepest sea in the Pacific. You can't see the blue; it's sort of black-like because it's so deep, you know. And those waves were huge. I mean, just huge. And our ships, those Liberty ships, only ten tons, and they're not that big of a ship, you know. Um, so anything could have happened. So so far, we did make it, you know. And we had Kyoto, and uh, the uh, city of Kyoto, which is the third city. Uh, there we got in there, and the Japanese were very, very good. I would treat this very nicely, and so we we took the truckload and we went to this air base, you know, uh, about ninety miles away from Kyoto. And our job is a platoon to destroy any weaponry or anything they had around. That's what we did for a while. But then we used to walk around the cities, and uh, the people who were there treated us very nicely. In fact, they even some of them uh, invited some of our uh, us guys uh, for dinner and. Uh, and very, I I couldn't believe it, you know. That, that's that's very odd. What do you think? It's just because of a kind of a I don't want to say the samurai tradition, but they basically had a respect for the victor. Yeah, evidently so. I mean, evident, evidently so. Yeah. Hmm. Would I say something about the infantrymen? Sure. You know, um, my my experience in what. The infantrymen never respected as as good as the the Marines or the Air Corps or the uh, Navy, you know. And then in the the European War, we had three generals, uh, Eisenhower, uh, um, Adnan, and Marshall, all Army uh, generals. The war in in Europe were all infantrymen, mostly on the ground. And they beat the hell out of the Germans, you know. Oh, yeah. And so, then you have uh, all these young men that come in on the later wars, you know, with missing limbs, and they're all infantrymen. But they're not respected as much as the other, the other, you know. Let me tell you, my experience as an infantryman, when I got home, I was ill. I had the shakes. I, I I sputtered. Uh, I, I getting back in that civilian life was very difficult, and you can understand when these infantrymen or anyone has been at tragic wars like us and my myself, when they come home, everything that they did just hits them all at one time, you know. And a lot of them, you don't want to commit suicide. Um, they, they just can't get it. Get I had the idea of what they went through, you know, killing people, going through all the stuff that I just told you about. Uh, it took them a while and uh, to get themselves back to normal, and a lot of them get, couldn't get back to normal. They committed suicide, and you, you've heard about them, uh, these young men, especially in the later wars where the enemy had weaponry that greater than the ones we had in, in World War Two. Yeah. They and so there's a lot more these guys coming home with missing limbs and everything. Like, you know why we didn't have missing limbs in the World War Two? We didn't have no helicopters picking the young men up dead and meet the dead when their their arms or legs were removed. They bled the dead. Yeah, they didn't survive. Yeah. Yeah, they survived. So the other word you said 
helicopters picking them up and, and taking them to a hospital right away. But we got to get another young a lot of credit. I'm gonna. We, we only got about three minutes left, and I want you to just tell, talk more to that next generation real quick, if you don't mind. I encourage you look up John McManus. He wrote a series of three books specifically to address the situation that you brought up, where you know people don't know that the majority of the ground fighting in the Pacific was done by the Army, and he wrote those three books, and they're excellent books to help address that situation. Like I said, Joe, we just got three minutes left. Unfortunately, what? I mean, what advice or what do you want to share with the, the younger generations out there? I know personally I'm concerned that they're not joining, like, the American Legion so much anymore. They're, 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 they've lost their tribe, it seems like, when they've come back from war. A lot of things are happening that should be happening, especially a lot of them are not being educated. They're doing like I am talking to you. And so they, they, they just ignore what, what's taking place. Like right now, you know, we have... Uh, Four of those countries building up very much so big military background where the only enemy they have is us here, and we're not doing our. They, we depleted our our uh, navy and our army and our air corps, and you know we're really hurting ourselves very badly and not building up while the other countries are building up. And there's not enough being said about you know the veterans or what they go through, just like what you've done with me. You know, there's got to be not of us got to be exposed more to these people what it means to fight for our country and saving it, you know, and now. So, um, you know, if you give me just a one minute, I'll tell you about something. Today I, I spoke to a big group of people telling them about how the world was amazed to see how our country got together, the women in the back, million of the supplies and everything, doing everything for the nurses, the wax, the name general. There are a lot of women involved. And they never got enough credit. And if it wasn't for these women in home doing the work they did, I think we would not win this war. The women played a big part in this war. That is that is that a thing that that you heard about Rosie the Riveter and all them. There's many more just like her building ships and building tanks and everything to supply us. Without that supply, we cannot win that war. That's what and I tell you, Joe, one of my favorite interviews was with a woman who was a nurse who was at the Battle of Bulge and survived the Battle of Bulge and what, what a peach she was in a great interview. Joe Shari, it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you. We'll do our part, sir. We'll get this message out to as many ears as possible as we can. And thank you for your service and your, your patriotism and your continued involvement in your community. And um, here's I'm looking forward to talking to you just for your 100th birthday. Well, you know, I would love to be here for our 100th birthday. There's a lot of people counting on it. I have I have a priest at the Holy Angels Catholic Church that he's uh, prayed for me and helped me out to make sure that I'm healthy. Uh, that the Holy Angels people, are, all my parishioners are all there for me and all. And, and uh, I can't ask for better prayers than that. And we'll add a prayer to that pile, too. So uh, take care of yourself, Joe. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. There you go, ladies and gentlemen, another one in the can. You can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Until next time, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform. 